0: So we are in James chapter 1. If you're a guest with us, we just work our way through the scriptures. And you happen to have joined us uh, right at the beginning of James. Last week, we just had uh, verse 1, an introduction to the book of James. And today, we're just doing verses 2 through 4 because it's a, uh, a lot in there and a lot to learn from it and something we really need in our day. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read these three verses? In honor of God's word, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Amen, this is God's word, you can be seated. So James, um, this particular James, is the half-brother of Jesus. As far as we can tell, we don't know absolutely for sure. Someone uh, texted me this week and said, how do we know it wasn't James the Lesser? And we don't really. It could could have been him as well. The only time he's mentioned is in the list of disciples. James the the Greater, or um, the brother of John, was assassinated or murdered. Uh, Shortly before the letter was written. So we know it's not him. So more than likely, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he introduces himself in verse 1 as the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he lets us know he sees the Father and the Son as one because Jesus said you can't serve two masters. And James is literally saying, I'm a slave to them both, to the Father and to the Son. Uh, And he's addressing in this letter uh, the need for the fledgling church that's now, because of the uh, martyrdom of James, the brother of John, they're spreading out into distant regions. A lot of the church is outside of Jerusalem now, and the apostles can't oversee it. All those different churches, they're getting older. Some of them are being killed, and so they don't have much time left. So what's going to happen to the church? So James writes this letter. The first probably, first uh, part of our Bible, first book in our New Testament is probably the book of James. We don't know for certain, but probably it's the first one that was written. And it was written to help that church stay on track. I kind of see it as uh, clues to whether we are walking in the spirit or walking in the flesh. He gives us, gives the churches and us today guidelines, principles about what the Christian life looks like. And he begins in verse two, his teaching in verse two to all the churches and us today with this verse. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So verse two begins with a little wordplay. We've seen that we saw a bunch of Hebrew wordplays when we went through the book of Jonah. Greek has the same kind of thing, but just slightly different. Greeting is chiren, and it's very similar to charan. So which is um, greetings is chiren, and and count uh, is... is Charan. So Moffat translates it, greet it as pure joy. Greet it as pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. So what do we greet with pure joy? Trials of various kinds. But let's look at the original language again and find a little deeper expression of what it means to meet those trials of various kinds. It would actually be more of a literal translation from the original language, which was Greek, if we called it being plunged into afflictions and persecutions. Okay? So, how crazy is this statement of James? Greet it as pure joy, my brothers, when you're plunged into afflictions of all kinds. Is that crazy? What's he getting at? Why is he saying this? It seems absurd. He's telling us what the half-brother, his half-brother, the Lord Jesus, told us on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you." But James is even kind of broadening that uh, to all afflictions, all kinds of afflictions that enter our lives. And for the early church, it meant a lot more than what we experience. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11 from verse 36 to 38. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. That's quite a bit more severe than what we face, especially in the Western world. We may be mocked. Recently, some have even suffered imprisonment, but flogging, stoning, sawn in two, well, not yet, at least not here. Killed with the sword, now that's more likely to take place in North Africa, China, or India. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, the author tells us how they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. It reads, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. Endurance. So that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's Hebrews 10, 34 to 38. Plundering of your property is another form of trials of various kinds. Faith sees past the present loss of the temporal things of this world to the Lord's return and an eternal reward. Now, think about for a second, Um, our political situation is getting very strange. Could you count it all joy if the government confiscated your bank account because you believed in biblical values? I heard a big sigh these heroes of faith did so because they knew they'd laid up their treasure in heaven and that treasure as jesus said can't be stolen or lost it it doesn't rust or decay it's forever but the hebrews that were being written to in the letter to the hebrews were being shaken by this constant threat so the author tells them endure with your eyes on the real prize And that's what James tells his readers is the outcome of affliction and endurance because we walk by faith and not by sight. We know we're in God's hands and that a glorious future awaits us. We are on the narrow road that leads to eternal life and at Jesus' right hand are pleasures forevermore. The tyrants and thieves who cause us to have trials are really blessing us. They are taking away our hope in this temporal world and causing us to focus on what really matters. They will go down the broad road and find it ends in being forever with people like themselves away from the presence of the Lord. The narrow road we travel leads to overwhelming joy forevermore. That doesn't mean following Jesus is easy. On the contrary, he warned us it would not be. Trials are often quite painful and stressful, and we even grieve over some of the trials. But James is saying the heart of the believer can still have great joy amid the pain. We have that hope that is greater than what this world has to offer. It's a sure hope. Jesus will be glorified in us and we will forever marvel in his presence. Do you have that hope? Because that's so much greater than anything this world has to offer. Immeasurably greater. This perspective means that we don't need to fear what man can do to us. Because man can't take away from us what is eternal. He can try to squelch our faith, cause us to doubt. But when he does, I encourage you to remember Psalm 73. The psalmist talks about his envy of the wicked. They seem to get away with everything and thrive doing so. They have no fear of God and it seems like God's just letting them get away with it. The harsh reality confused the psalmist until he went into the temple and had the following revelation, Psalm 73, 18 to 28. The first part of the psalm, he just tells about how, man, they have everything their heart could wish. Their children are blessed. Their great-grandchildren are blessed. They're they're overweight because they have everything they want to eat. It's just like there's no problems with them. What gives God? How come? And then he went into the sanctuary of God. Verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So the psalmist says that in his state of envy, he was like a wild animal, only thinking of what would be pleasing for the moment. But they will perish, and their hopes and dreams and their worldly pleasures will perish with them. But God is continually with the psalmist, he says, guiding him, holding his right hand. He will receive him into glory. Even if his health fails, God is the strength of his heart. He wants to always be close to God, who is his refuge. God showed him how temporal worldly pleasure is. Therefore, when trials come our way, we should count it as a blessing to mature us and keep our hearts fixed on what's eternal. Instead of envying the wicked and, and asking, Why, God, why are you allowing this? Instead, we can sing, I'm going to praise you in the storm, for you're good, and you always do good. There's a reason for my trial. And by faith, I believe it's going to help me draw near to you and make me more like you. Show me what I need to learn in this trial. You know, when the Sanhedrin uh, took Peter and John and flogged them and then let them go, they were rejoicing. Now, flocking is, (laughs) that's awfully painful but they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to sh- suffer shame for the name of Jesus. We just read an account, in fact, in our last study in the book of Jonah, how Jonah was angry because of God's grace upon Israel's enemy. And pouting in his little makeshift shelter, God appointed a plant to give him shade. But the next day, the God, God smote the plant with a worm and an east wind And Jonah learned from his discomfort, from his trial, from his anger, that he was more concerned about the plant than he was about the 120,000 people and their animals because he was thinking more about himself and his comfort than he was concerned about their eternal souls. What a lesson in selfishness and our fleshly attitudes. What a necessary trial in which he should have thanked God for having such patience with him to teach him that lesson. We're either going into a trial, in a trial, or coming out of a trial. Life is full of trials for everyone, including the rich and the comfortable. We just don't see that tra- the trials with the rich and comfortable because they can hide them so well. But you know and you've read of how many die of drug overdoses because all that wealth and all that fame doesn't fill the heart. The believer has additional troubles because, as Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they've persecuted me, they will persecute you. Those on the broad road are challenged by the lives of those on the narrow road, and they don't like that. They will use us as scapegoats whenever they can because it helps them to avoid conviction. James is telling us to expect it and even thank God for it. Is your goal to be on the narrow road that leads to eternal life with Jesus? Then, when you're persecuted for your stand, or you just have difficulties in life because you follow Jesus, you can rejoice. It is affirmation that you are on the narrow road, it's a sign that God is molding and shaping you. Is that what you want? Or do you want to live for temporary pleasure? Peter tells us, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing was happening to you, but rejoice in so much as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus, Peter, and James are all saying the same thing Expect trials joyfully knowing God is in control and he'll use them in your life to mature you and to bring him glory. You will suffer one way or the other in this fallen world. Everyone does. Make it count. James is commending the conscience embrace of a Christian understanding of life, which brings joy into the trial that comes because of our Christianity. James says, consider it pure joy, which means to make a deliberate and a careful decision to experience joy even in times of trouble. Uh, Pastor Lloyd John Ogilvie said, I can have joy when I cannot feel it, artesian joy. What an expression, huh? Artesian joy. It reminds me of what Jesus said to the woman at the well, you know, the water that I give you will spring up into eternal life within you. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James tells us that we already know from experience and common sense what he's about to tell us. Why should we be joyful in various kinds of trials that test our faith? It's because God is producing in us, through our exercise of our faith, a steadfast spirit. Trials don't produce faith. They test our faith, like metal is tested in a furnace to burn off the impurities. Precious things are tested. Faith is essential to our salvation as the heart is to the body. And that's why the enemy of our soul attacks our faith and shoots arrows of doubt. Trials don't produce faith. God's word does that. The test of our faith makes it stronger and more capable so that we remain steadfast. It's a fascinating word in Greek. It's one of my favorites, Hupomone. It's called the queen of virtues. It's the ability to hold up under a burden until completion. Uh, like a person carrying a load to the finish line. We could also translate it as active endurance or or patience. ESV chooses a word that implies spiritual endurance. Steadfastness. It's not only standing firm in faith, but also resisting the temptation of trials and learning from them until the trial is over then we're stronger in faith to endure the next trial, because there will be the next trial. And through it all, we are maturing, growing stronger spiritually. The carnal reaction to trials is to complain, to become bitter, sometimes even angry with God. And of course, that only makes the trial worse. James is telling us the way to avoid that is to receive the trial joyfully. That doesn't mean you become masochistic and seek out suffering or even that you are going to be happy about it. It means that you exercise your faith and believe that God will use it to mature you, that it's going to be for your good. And with that mindset, you can face trials with pure joy in your heart. We find in Paul's letter to Romans that Paul is in agreement with this point as well. In chapter 5 from verse 1, he writes, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Greek word translated as endurance is the same word translated as steadfastness in the James passage. Paul's telling us that the only way to rejoice in suffering that we experience first is to be justified by faith. That results in peace with God, being under his grace. And if you have peace and grace with an all-powerful creator, then you know that whatever is allowed to come into your life can be used for your good, your eternal good. Not only do we have a future hope of eternity in his glorious presence, but we can rejoice because we know that the suffering that we go through will produce endurance in us through this life. That produces character, like Jesus' character. And when we see him changing us like that, it encourages us to have hope that we will finish, that he will finish what he started. We'll not be ashamed when we meet him because we're experiencing his love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now notice how James abbreviates this whole concept in the next verse, verse four. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What Paul calls character and hope and being unashamed in God's presence, James refers to as being perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. These expressions in their present application are by some thought to be borrowed from the Grecian games. The man who was said to be perfect, who in any of the athletic exercises is the one who got the victory. He he was entire having everything complete, who had the victory in the pentathlon in each of the five exercises. We can be victorious over our old nature when we walk in the spirit. He will help us to see our trials from a positive perspective and enable us to praise God by faith, knowing that the victory is ours in Christ Jesus. Another way of looking at the Greek word translated perfect is the way it's referred to in the Old Testament of a sacrificial animal. They were declared perfect if there was no obvious blemishes on them. So if we apply the word in that sense, it means that the casual observer of the steadfast and patient life would not see any obvious sinful actions or attitudes. One of man's most obvious sinful expressions is anger. We express anger over politics, over differences of opinion, the way others drive, when we are slighted, and on and on. And we should be careful to distinguish between righteous indignation and anger. I think most of us, when we saw the sound of freedom, we were angry with righteous indignation. The former will address the sin and pray that those involved come to the light and receive conviction. That's what we pray for after we saw that movie. The latter exalts self over those with whom we are angry, not considering that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God we tend to forget the grace that we have so bountifully received and how patient God is with us. And this brings us to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The concept is is that if you are indeed born again, you will persevere to the end of your life. I know several cult leaders who once were in denominations that adhered to the word of God. In one case, uh, one of them lost a child. And so they began to uh, reject the Bible and start to make up their own ideas about what was true. And then saw themselves as being some great prophet who was revealing something new to the world and started a cult. They gain a following because their concepts are man centered instead of God centered. They had fallen away from the faith. We don't keep ourselves. It's the Lord who keeps us. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit only because he's given us new life with new desires. We persevere through the trials of life as God preserves us. We may stumble along the way, but in the end, we'll cling to our faith in God and the salvation that we have in Jesus. If we try to persevere in our own strength, we will certainly fail. It's God who has given us eternal life, and therefore it's he who will keep us. As James will show us through this letter, faith results in life that produces fruit unto God. Jesus explained that there will be those who receive the word with gladness, but in times of testing, they fall away. We cannot always know who are chosen and been born again, except by the long-term fruit in their lives. It's not for us to judge, but we can say for certain that those who endure to the end are saved. A great example of steadfastness is seen in the Old Testament book of Job. While Job endured trials of every kind and the worst intensity, his friends only looked for a fault in him as the reason for his suffering. But Job did not sin with his mouth. We can learn from Job that questioning why God has allowed trials is, is normal to human nature, and yet it's not sin. It's only natural to want to understand what is happening and why. But Job remains steadfast in his conviction that God is on the throne of heaven and that he does as His pleases for his own good reasons. Job persevered under unbearable conditions all the way to the end of the trial, and God blessed him with twice what he had before. But more importantly, he blessed him with a personal relationship and understanding of the greatness and sovereignty of God. The only greater example than Job is our Lord Jesus Christ, who endured the wrath of God for our sins until as he said, it is finished. The book of Hebrews tells us that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And I believe that joy is not only that he would return to the Father's presence and to his former glory, but that we would be perfected and made into his perfect bride. We too should offer our lives as a living sacrifice to the one who gave himself for us and by his grace joyfully endure whatever he allows to come our way, to bring him glory and honor through it, to stand firm and hold fast to the end. Does he deserve anything less? Joe, would you lead us in that closing song? And then I'll bring the benediction.